As Ryan said, we've kind of been going through our, our series on union, and it's talking about kind of uh, communion with God and, and union with Christ and how those two things kind of relate. And really, this morning we kind of enter into the second phase of this series. We're really going to dig in this week and in two weeks and the week after that. We're going to dig into what are the benefits of our union with Christ uh, what particularly does this gain for us to be united to Christ in faith? Really, there is no communion with God outside of union with Christ. And before, we've stated that our union with, with Christ is something that's unearned. It's of God's grace, whereas our communion with God is sometimes something that, that ebbs and flows. It's not static. I ran across a, a quote by Kelly Capick that I think really uh, summarizes this. He says, whereas our union with Christ neither grows nor diminishes, our experience of communion can and does. So while our prayers or lack of prayers do not make us more or less united to Christ, they make a real difference to our enjoyment of and fellowship with God. Union establishes the relationship. Communion is the mutual communication and experience that happens within that relationship. A negligent hus husband may still be united to his wife in marriage, but that does not mean their relationship is flourishing. Their legal union does not make that life-giving communion mean that life-giving communion is taking place. And what we're drawing out here is to say there is a way that we can be uh, united to Christ in faith and ebb and flow in communion. And what we want to dig into is that second part. What does it mean for us to have fellowship with God? What does it mean for us to know God personally in this kind of relationship? If you know, historically, evangelicals have kind of uniquely talked about this relationship that we have with God. We've emphasized this personal need for us to relate to him personally. Let's dig into that. I was reading this week about, um, I'm going to mess up his name, but his name or his pseudonym was actually Commander Deutsch. And he was a, um, a leader in the Khmer Rouge of the, the Cam Cambodian history. If you're familiar with uh, Cambodia's history, the Khmer Rouge just killed thousands of thousands of political prisoners and they were there. And this particular man, Commander Deutsch, was responsible for as many as 12,000 Cambodian deaths. He oversaw the Tuol Slang. I'm not pronouncing this correctly, but it's the S21 prisoner camp. But Deutsch was, was specifically different. After the Khmer Rouge was kind of cleared out, all of the, the leaders were kind of gathered together, Deutsch was the only one who confessed that what he had done, what he had particularly or participated in was wrong. He was the sole commander, the sole cadre involved that, that actually made confession of the wrongs that he had done. And I believe he is still currently serving his life sentence in prison. But Deutsch was different in another way. He was different in that in 1995, following the death of his wife, who he assumed was put to death by uh, some assassination attempt by Pol Pot. He flees his home in Cambodia and goes to another quiet little town in Cambodia. And he starts to get involved in the church in Cambodia, which is rare, right? And this person who's now under a pseudonym, is no longer using his actual name, gets baptized. He becomes a believer in Jesus Christ. He actually is a lay pastor in this church for years until he is discovered and held trial for his crimes. 
See, it raises an interesting question. If this story is true, how does God give grace to such sinners? How does God extend grace and mercy to someone who has killed 12,000 people, who has participated in such dark and terrible things? How does God extend such mercy to an individual like that? And of course, we can just bypass our own sinfulness. We can say, of course, I've never done anything like that. I never oversaw a Cambodian prison camp. I never did anything so heinous as what this man has done. How can God be so merciful to someone so sinful? And we just bypass over our own sin. We gloss over the infractions against the holy God that we've committed. And we think, how scandalous is God's grace that he can extend mercy and kindness to someone like this? See, I think our answer this morning is right here on the front of our our page in Romans chapter 6. Our answer is clear is that God passes over the offenses of those men and women who have created terrible and heinous things against his character, against his holiness. He does that as uniting them through faith with his own son, Jesus Christ. And it's as if the holiness and righteousness of Jesus just kind of swallows up the sinfulness of of those that come to him in faith. See, this morning I I come to a passage in Romans chapter 6 that I have a rich history in that God has used and shown me uh, personally the, the depth and mercy of God's grace and kindness to me, how he has set me free to live in newness of life. And we want to kind of pull those truths out this morning. As we do, here's our big idea. Our union with Jesus through faith means that we die and live with him. And really, Paul's argument is split up into two phases here in these 11 verses. In verses 1 through 7, which we're going to spend the majority of our time in here this morning, verses 1 through 7 are going to say that we are dead to sin through our union with Christ. That through our faith in Jesus Christ, we become uh, dead to sin. And then secondly, in verses 8 through 11, that we become alive to God in Jesus Christ. If you recognize our our outline actually follows with it uh, in verse 11. It's just basically stealing verse 11. You also must consider yourselves dead to sin, alive to God in Jesus Christ. And as that Paul gives that summary, that's what we see these headings to kind of be. And I want to dig in this morning in verses 1 through 7 of Romans chapter 6, where we see that through Christ we are dead to sin. Look at verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. See, what happens here is Paul starts into this section of his letter, and in this section he's anticipating the objections of his audience. And so what really clues us into this is that a few different occasions in verses 6 and or in chapters 6 and 7, he says, what shall we say then, or what then? He's anticipating uh, the thoughts and minds of, of those that are reading his letter. And particularly here in verses 1, he's saying, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Now I want to draw your attention to verse 20 and 21, where we might start to think that this was the case. Verse 20 says this, now the law came into, uh, the law came to increase the trespass. 
But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So you can see the implication, where we would get this question from. Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? In fact, the recipients of this letter, and we ourselves, we kind of had this uh, moral inclination inside of ourselves, don't we? We kind of reject this out of hand. We say, it's not right, it's not good for us just to abandon all kinds of moral underpinnings. That's what it feels like Paul is doing. And what Paul is going to do in Romans 6 and 7, he's going to build that back up. Why then do we live in holiness and obedience to God? See, Paul anticipates an objection. He says, why not sin so as to increase God's grace? Heard someone tell me the story that when they were a child, uh, they would go you know, out to the store, and they'd want this item that was at the store, and, and the mother would say, no, I'm sorry, we, we can't afford it right now. And then the child would look back at the, at the mother and say, well, just go to the magic ATM thing. Stick in the card and go get more money out, right? What's the problem? All you do is go to the magic box, stick in the magic card, and money comes out. It, it recognizes that there's a deeper reality under this statement that Paul makes here. There's a deeper reality that where grace increased, or where sin increased, grace increased all the more. We need to kind of pull out the underpinnings of that, just like you can't just pull money out of a box, right? And so Paul gives us a shorthand here in verse 2. At the end of verse 2, he says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? How could we who died to sin still continue to live in in sin. Paul's envisioning kind of this zombie spirituality, right? That we would just, the sinful nature would just be the living dead amongst us. You're going to find here in this, in this chapter in Romans 6, these three words that are just constantly being used. Death, life, and sin. And Paul's going to build this kind of robust argument from these three terms and kind of build this understanding of our union with Christ through those three terminologies. And so he gives us this obvious point, right? Our dead parts don't live on. So why do we keep living according to them? See, the truth is, uh, believers should find diminishing returns from their sins. We should find less and less joy, less and less satisfaction in our sinfulness. We should find increasing hatred of the guilt and shame that follows those acts. We should view sin like, like uh, a, foreign, a foreign citizen coming to the United States and, and bringing their currency to Walmart. And they, they lay down their, their pesos or their euros to the cashier at Walmart and they can't take them. They no longer have any value here. See, we, we recognize that we have died to sin, and now we live in newness of life, which is exactly where Paul's going to go next in verses 3 and 4. Look at what he says in verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk excuse me, in newness of life. Paul's response is that we died to sin with Jesus at our baptism. That's what Paul's saying there in verse 3, right? We've 
died to sin through baptism into death. And we've got to stop here and we just got to clarify what is this baptism that Paul's talking about? Because you and I know, as we're kind of anticipating a baptism service coming up, we know that we're not actually saved through baptism. That if you, um, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, it's that faith and faith alone that saves you, that baptism is not the thing that actually saves you. And really, we have a couple different options of interpretation here in front of us. First, that this is referring to kind of a spiritual submersion into Christ. Or secondly, that, that baptism is kind of a, a shorthand for the whole of the salvation experience. And so commentators kind of lean one of those two ways, and, and you can pick or choose whichever, but we want to recognize that baptism doesn't actually change our status or our standing before God. It's a public proclamation of our inward faith that we have. Now, that being said, what exactly is Paul getting to? Because he unites our baptism with Jesus' death. That is, what Paul is saying here is that we vicariously died with Jesus through faith. We vicariously participate in Jesus' death, his payment for sin, through our faith in him. And this seems strange to us, doesn't it? Uh, we, it seems awkward and different to us, but we should kind of anticipate that this was the case. We see places all throughout the Bible where there is just this vicarious uh, passing on of guilt. Maybe not of guilt, but a vicarious atonement that was already precluded. Isaiah was substituted with a ram at Mount Moriah in Genesis 22. In Leviticus 16, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would lay his hands on the head of a goat, and he would confess the sins of Israel, and then that goat would go out into the wilderness, a picture of the removal of our guilt from God's presence. Isaiah 53, we all, we all see it. We all say it on Good Friday. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Jesus himself told us in, in Luke 9, 23, right? Uh, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. See, the way of tapping into Jesus' death is through our personal death of confession and repentance. But the second thing is that Paul shows us the, the reason for this. I want to highlight in verse 4. In verse 4, you see the phrase, in order that... Every time that's in the Scripture, specifically in the New Testament, specifically in Paul, you just want to highlight that and say, Paul's showing us the cause of what's happening. Every time you see an in order that, you see a, a causality that seems to be happening. And, and Paul's highlighting the, the purpose of this union with Christ, specifically that Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father so that we could walk in the newness of life. See, the point of our union with Christ is our resurrection, our, our newness in Jesus. Paul is saying that we should not continue in sin uh, because we have opportunity to walk in newness of life. Dad's here this morning, right? There's probably dads who are going to a car show today, maybe. Are they having car shows with COVID-19? Who knows if you can get COVID-19 at a car show? I don't know. But we recognize that, like, well, have you ever met that guy who has a really nice car? but he refuses to drive it. He refuses, it stays in his garage. You know, it's just kind of there. It's a beautiful piece of machinery. And I don't know anything about cars, but I know a beautiful car when I see one, right? We, we, we reminded of the guy who has the beautiful car that sits in his garage. 
It's it reminded of the person who, who lives near the beach but never goes there. We are those who, who potentially could be raised to new life in Christ but continue to live in the deadness of our sins and transgressions. We recognize that we could be those who miss out on the beauty, the joy of what God has given to us in Christ. Specifically, Paul wants to spell out the beauty of this life in verses 5 through 7. And so we've seen the objection in verses 1 through 2, Paul's theology of our union with him and his death, and then verses 5 through 7, he kind of unpacks this a little bit more. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. What Paul says is we've been united with him in his resurrection, but how? Well, verses 6 and 7 spell out exactly what happened, right? In Jesus' death, in Jesus' burial, my sin was taken to his grave and it was left there with the death of Jesus. That he paid the penalty that I deserved. He, he provided this atonement for my sin, but he left my sinful nature in the grave with him. And this is how we speak of resurrection. We only have the promise of resurrection as our sinful nature is left in that grave. That's why Paul says in verse 5, he's saying, if we have uh, been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly also be united with him in a resurrection. And then he turns back in verses 6 and 7 and talks about how we're no longer slaves to sin because our sinful nature is dead. See, Paul takes us one layer deeper here, doesn't he? He kind of unpacks that what this newness of life means. It means that our sinful nature, our slavery to sin has been stripped away. It's been taken away from us so that you and I no longer have that portion of us that is just bound to sinfulness. Imagine an animal that is chained to a stake. The, the animal knows that it's bound to this particular area of ground. But you and I have had that tether cut in Christ. We're no longer bound to the sinful humanity that we were bound to before. See, sin's power is death. If you look through the scripture, you'll find time and time again that sin always was to lead to death, right? In Genesis 2, God comes to Adam and he says, hey, you're not going to touch or eat this tree of the knowledge of good and evil because in the day that you touch of it, or the day that you eat of it, excuse me, you will surely die. In fact, that's a point of controversy with Satan as, as Eve is having this kind of discussion with Satan at the very next chapter in Genesis 3. Uh, Satan is saying, you will not surely die. And he's raising the doubt in Eve's mind. Romans 6 reminds us that the wages of sin is death, that as we are sinners, we anticipate death. Christopher Ashe says that, that death is the weapon of mass destruction of our sinful humanity. That we recognize as we're all sinners, we anticipate our coming death. We all fearfully await our death. The beauty here this morning is that as we are united with Jesus in his death, we have defeated death. Jesus has defeated death by death. 
Even though Jesus never sinned, he entered into that punishment willingly, and so he now extends his righteousness to all who believe. I love this portion where where Jesus is talking to these people in Israel, and he says, I'm not going to give any more signs to you. The only sign I'm going to give to you is the sign of Jonah. And like Jonah was three days in the belly of a fish, so the Son of Man will also be dead. Yeah, it doesn't become that clear, but he's, he's saying the sign of Jonah is that I'm going to enter into death for three days, and by God's mercy, I'm going to be raised up victoriously. Jesus is giving us this clear indication that he is intending to overcome death by death, that he enters into the belly of the whale, as it were, and comes out victorious on the other side. If you and I are in Christ, we also have entered into death. We have come out and we wait for God's victory in our resurrection. It's that resurrection that Paul wants to get to in verses 8 through 11. See, it's not just that we are dead to sin and then we're supposed to just work everything out. We're supposed to earn our future resurrection in Christ. It's not that that God just kind of cleaned the slate with the grace of God so that all of our historic past sins are gone and done away with. Rather, what we see is that God promises us resurrection with Christ. We've died with Christ. We will be raised with Christ. Look with me at verse 8. This is now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. Verse 8, someday we will live with Christ Paul mentioned it in verse 4 that if we've died with him, we'll also be united with him in his resurrection. And verse 8 brings it to, uh, says it clearly. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. This death with Christ leaves us to life also with him. And from there, Paul starts to envision exactly what this life is going to look like. And, and the good news is that we have a model of exactly what this new life in Christ is going to look like, Christ himself. In verses 9 and 10, we see this description of what Jesus' subsequent life after resurrection was, life, was like. Excuse me. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Our resurrected life will be eternal. Death no longer has mastery over us. Let's unpack that for a second. Right now, you and I, we have a certain number of heartbeats left, don't we? You ever think about that? There's a certain amount of times that your heart is going to beat before it beats its last. You have the ever-present knocking of death at your door. You recognize, uh, if you're a thinking person, you recognize that your time is limited, that you will not live on forever. But in Christ, because Jesus has entered into our death, death no longer has mastery over him. And as we are united by faith with Christ, we also recognize that after our heart stops beating, it will start beating once again, won't it? 
Someday we will be raised to this new life that God has promised. Just as Christ sat in a grave for three days, he was raised to new life. Someday our heart will stop beating, but we will anticipate a resurrection to newness in Christ. Death no longer has mastery. If you think about that, Saturday afternoon, you're thinking, man, I don't want to waste this Saturday afternoon. I don't want to waste it. And it's true. Someday we, don't, we, we, we want to be faithful with the time God has given to us. But there's also another truth there that says, I've got an eternity of Sunday, Saturday afternoons coming to me, don't I? I have an eternity to look forward to that death no longer has mastery over Christ and I am in Christ and I no longer have to worry about these days and hours and redeeming the time. I have to sense that God has given me eternity in Christ and I no longer need to feel the weight of every minute. In fact, we approach that with a a kingdom orientation, say we redeem the hours, we redeem the days because of Christ's resurrection. But he goes on in verse 9, and he he further defines what this resurrection is going to look like as he looks at Christ. Excuse me, I said verse 9, I meant verse 10. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. The death that Jesus died, he died to sin. And what the truth of this is, is not just that our our time is unlimited. Now our sinfulness is eradicated in Christ. And and now God has made fullness of payment through the death and resurrection of Jesus so that now you and I are no longer stuck under the weight of our sinfulness. We have the freedom of of God's grace and goodness to us. It's it's the statement made in Psalm 32, how blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven, whose transgressions are covered. We are blessed in Christ to have our forgiveness through him. But he goes on in verse 10. But the life he lives, he lives to God. See, I wonder, I wonder at times if we, as we read our Bibles, we might say statements like this, we might see statements like this in the Scriptures, and we might just be tempted to just kind of gloss over what's happening. And we want to sink our teeth into the, to the verses, of verse 9 and verse 10, and say, ah, I have eternity, I have forgiveness of sin, but I've forgotten that God has made me alive to God. That now, through my union with Jesus, now I have this relationship with the God of the universe, the God who created all things with his words, who controls all things, who sees all things. God, Jesus has made me alive to God in Christ. See, when we talk about communion with God or our union with Christ, this is the importance of it. It's not just that God forgave our sins, that God gave us eternity. God gave us God in Christ. He took us in the, the death and deadness of our transgressions and sins, and he brought us into this newness of life. Christian, don't lose that. Don't lose the beauty of what it means to know God. Because every ounce, every cell in your being, every inclination of your heart, every thought in your mind, every work of your hands was working in the opposite direction. And God gave us newness of life 
in Jesus Christ. Don't gloss over this. In fact, as we read forward in verse 11, Paul calls us to just reckon with this idea. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. Just consider the two poles of what's being described here by Paul, saying we we are dead to sin. It no longer has mastery over us. The, The cord has been cut. We live in the freedom of the resurrection of Christ as if it's already happened, although we're still waiting for it to happen. But we also have this life in our resurrection with Christ. We can't just bypass that. I'm afraid sometimes, if you're like me, you just go through your day with this laundry list of sins to avoid. You ever do that? You you go through your day and you're saying, I'm not going to smoke, drink, or chew, or go with girls who do. Okay, I'm trying to provide humor. I'm just not a funny person, okay? Let's just admit it. We'll we'll all be better off. We just go through our life and we say, I'm not going to do these things. I'm going to stay away from these things. And I'm going to try to do some good things. And we put our head to the pillow at night and, and we go to sleep. And maybe we're guilty or maybe we're set free. I don't know. But the truth is that right now, available to us, as the curtain has been torn in Christ, with the fullness of God available to you and I, if we trust in Christ. The fullness of access. What's it Paul said, or the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 10, he says, uh, but now, through the blood of Christ, we have confidence to enter into the most holy place. That place was the place that only the high priests could go. Now you and I can regularly traffic. We can regularly step into the presence of God through the death of Jesus. Do you sense the sweetness of that? Do you sense just the marrow and the goodness of God to give us communion with him? See, our union with Christ is essential. We can talk about our union with Jesus. We can talk about knowing God. We can talk about having fellowship with God. There's lots of books on the topic. There's lots of things that describe it. But, but really, we can, I've realized this even in, in crafting this series, is we can talk about union with Christ. We can talk about communion with God and still not really have any idea of what we're talking about. And so this morning, I want to just kind of gloss over what it means for us to be united with Jesus. What are the benefits of our union with Christ? See, as we are placing faith in Jesus, as, as Paul said, we're baptized with him in his death, there are certain benefits that come out through that. Being united with Christ makes us innocent in God's courtroom. Making, being united with Christ makes us innocent in God's courtroom. We were under the, the uh, decree of God. We were under his wrath, as John 3 describes. Before we were in Christ, the wrath of God was abiding over us. And now, as we have placed faith in Jesus, it's that, that wrath, that condemnation has been taken away. In fact, just a few chapters forward here, in Romans chapter 8, Paul is going to summarize. He says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. See, previously, we were kind of the the progeny of our spiritual father and mother, Adam and Eve. 
And as they had rebelled against God, we had inherited their nature. They were kind of our, our representative. And as we inherited their nature, and they were our representative who were condemned before God, we also were condemned. But now through faith, we have received a different head. We have received a different authority in Christ. So that now he is our head and he speaks the better word of his righteousness before the throne of his father. And so being united with Christ is being innocent, is being proclaimed righteous in God's courtroom. But being united with Christ doesn't just give us this kind of forensic kind of justification. It also means other things. Being united with Christ promises our future life, that Christ is kind of our prototype. If if being in the courtroom of God, declared righteous, is, is freeing us from sin's penalty, then our future life in Christ promises the removal of sin's presence. And that someday the sin will be stripped away from us. We will be in God's presence for all eternity. We'll no longer have this inclination of our sinful heart to rebel against God. As Jesus was resurrected, we also are promised this resurrection. Finally, we see that being united with Christ is what theologians describe as a mystical union. I think this is what Paul gets at in Ephesians 5 when he talks about how the church is the bride of Christ, that husbands are to love their wives as Christ has loved the church and given himself for her, that in some way we become united with Christ through faith in this mystical way. You know, John 15, we're going to read this in a few weeks. John 15, Jesus describes, he says, uh, if, you, if my words abide in you and you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. It says, abide in me and I in you. Uh, that's how we bear fruit in the kingdom of God. There's this kind of mutuality of we abide in Christ and Christ abides in us. Earlier in John 14, we'll discuss this later too, uh, John, Jesus says in John 14, he says that uh, he will come to us and he will make his home with us. And we recognize that that's the presence of the Holy Spirit in our life, that we have this kind of union with God, that we feel the proddings of the Holy Spirit in our life. We feel the presence of the Spirit in our life because we have been united with Christ through faith. And so we are no longer condemned. We have the promise of a future. We have the presence of the Spirit, this mystical union that we have with God in Christ. And so Jesus has saved us from sin's penalty. He will save us from sin's presence. He is saving us now from sin's power. Our union with Christ has made us alive to God. Jesus describes this, and he taps into this metaphor. And in the beginning of John, you know, you have this intro, and, and uh, John kind of introduces the person of Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But later on, at the end of the chapter, uh, first chapter of the book of John, Jesus describes to Nathaniel, as he's called Nathaniel uh, to follow him, he describes to Nathaniel, he says, um, you will see greater things than this. Greater than this miracle I've just performed. He kind of told Nathaniel that he saw him while he was under this tree previously. And he says, uh, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. He's saying, what is he talking about? 
It's kind of tapping into a bit of Israel's history because if you remember way back to Genesis where, where uh, Jacob is fleeing the presence of Esau and he puts his head on a rock and he falls asleep in this place called Bethel. And he goes to sleep and he has this, this vision of, of God ascending or the angels ascending and descending from this plot of land. That this is, uh, as he interprets it, this kind of mystical place where, where God meets with him. In fact, Jacob throughout the rest of his life keeps coming back to this place because he thinks that's where God meets with him. But Jesus is tapping into this metaphor and he's saying, I'm the one where angels ascend and descend. I'm the connection between heaven and earth. I'm the one who brings the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man together. I'm the one who will bring all of these things under one roof as God will eventually bring the new Jerusalem back down to the earth itself. God will eventually redeem all of his creation through the work of Jesus Christ. So you and I are made alive to God through Christ because Jesus has this reconciling work that he has accomplished. Sometimes we think about God as that reluctant parent, that reluctant parent who gets the phone call from the sheriff late at night, hey, your kid's kind of been out of hand and he's here in jail. You need to come pay the bail. We think about God as the reluctant parent who pays the bail and gets his kid out of jail. And instead, we think about the metaphors that God gives us or that God gives us about who Christ is specifically. And he's the loving husband devoted to his wayward bride. He's the good shepherd who leaves the 99 to go after the one. He's the loving master who rewards his faithful servant with the words, the words, enter into the joy of your master. He's loving, he's kind, patient, joyous. This is the Savior to whom we are united by faith. That union isn't just this formalized forensic relationship like that of a criminal with his attorney. This is the formative, life-altering union that God has with us in Christ. So here's the truth. So those who are alive to God in Christ don't go on living in deadness. You and I aren't zombie Christians, right? We don't just go on living out our deadness. We, we might time to time choose to uh, try to resurrect those acts of the flesh, but we aren't those who continue continually in the former acts that we saw last week. We are no longer slaves to our sin. Maybe you're here this morning. Maybe you're here and you feel just in bondage. You're so frustrated with yourself. Those words that you say that are so sharp to your spouse or to your kids. Maybe you're here this morning, you are in bondage to those images on the computer. You are in bondage to those extra work hours you can't get enough of. The truth is this morning, if you are in Christ, you are no longer bound. God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. God has broken our bondage to our sin. Yeah, I love that story of the commander Deutsch, which I'm totally botching his name, by the way, but I love that story because there's a freedom to be able to confess our wrongs. 
to be able to know that, that God is merciful in, in spades to us. This man has done horrible things, but he has a great Savior in Christ. We recognize this morning we might have a long, hard history with our sin. We might have continuing, ongoing struggles with our sin. In fact, we most likely do. And yet God has given us the means for freedom in Christ. Amen? See, when we talk about union with Christ, when we talk about communion with God, we're talking about how he brings us into his nature, how he makes us more like himself and how he receives honor in that. And so this morning, I want to conclude as we pray that God would make us those who cherish his character, his holiness, his righteousness, and help us to put on those characteristics through faith. Let's pray. Lord, we ask now that you would do exactly that, that you would allow us to see who you are, to know you personally, to be present with you in the Spirit, to hear your words, to know communion with you as we read your scriptures, to pray to you and, and know your presence. But Lord, in the midst of all of that, that you would make us like yourself in anticipation of the day when sin will finally be eradicated, when we will be brought into your presence. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.